Welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani Fossbinder. Like in nature, we see determined flowers and vines clinging to life and seeking light. So are Morning Glory people. And in this podcast, I'll interview writers, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, survivors, and thrivers, and trailblazers of all kinds. These are folks that have been determined to get over, under, around, and through the obstacles that face them, or to seize the opportunities that come before them. I find these people inspiring and amazing. I know you will too. When the earliest buds of the Morning Glory Project started to reveal themselves to me, it was in part because of the example of today's guests. When I met these two beautiful people, I witnessed their passion, their humor, their kindness, their generosity, and indeed, their awe-inspiring determination. And I wondered how they could possibly have those qualities with what they'd lived through, and indeed, what they continue to live through today. They're living a nightmare that most of us cannot imagine. And what makes them really inspiring to me is that they've devoted their lives to preventing others from experiencing that same nightmare. Lonnie and Sandy Phillips are the parents of Jessica Gowie, who was murdered in the massacre at the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises in the summer of 2012 in Aurora, Colorado. In order to attend the trial of Jesse's killer, they rented out their home and bought a camper trailer that ended up on a friend's property for the duration of the trial, which lasted more than four months. After the trial of the killer was over, they took their retirement and are presently traveling the country, well, pre-COVID anyway, traveling the country, speaking on gun violence prevention, and forming coalitions with other grassroots and survivors. They've been guests on 60 Minutes, interviewed on CNN by Anderson Cooper, and have been in the offices and hallways of senators and representatives on Capitol Hill trying to protect us all and protect all of our children. In the six years since the death of their daughter, they've been on the ground in the immediate aftermath of many mass shootings. They've co-founded a nonprofit called Survivors Empowered that provides resources, guidance, and a soft place to land for survivors of gun violence. It's with a big heart that I welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Lonnie and Sandy Phillips. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation, Betsy, and what a lovely introduction. You had me close to tears here. Thank you. Ah, Welcome. So, Sandy, I'm going to ask you to tell me about what your life was like on July 19th, 2012. It was, um, as they say, an ordinary day. Um, Jesse was living in Colorado and we were in Texas and she was Um, how old? She was 24 and uh, she had lived there for a year and 15 days, um, and was moving from the apartment that we helped move her into, into a new apartment, uh, with a roommate to save on money and, um, make things a little easier financially. Uh, So we were very proud of her for doing that on her own. Uh, She had arranged for movers to help, and I was flying out the Tuesday after um, to help her set up home, her new house. So you were planning on coming up? Yes, yes. This was was on a uh, Friday, and um, 
I was supposed to arrive on Tuesday. So we were um, looking forward to some time together, mother-daughter time, and getting her organized. Jessie, her nickname was Messy Jessie for a reason. She was not <laughs> organized at all. And uh, that was my strong suit at that point in life. And I was very good at uh, setting up closets and where things should be put and helping her uh, with that, that, that weakness. Just like lots of moms helping their kids move into apartments or dorm yes. rooms or yes. any of those exactly. things. Exactly. She had one semester left of school and uh, we were very proud of what she was doing and what she was becoming. And it was just an ordinary day. She had texted me several times during the day and responded. We talked all day long, off and on. Um, in fact, we were often criticized for being so close. But uh, now looking back, I'm very glad we had that kind of relationship. So you lived in Texas and she was in Colorado. Right. We raised our children in San Antonio and uh, she had moved to Colorado a year before and was living life and doing everything she had said she wanted to do. And and we were very proud of her. And then that night, um, she and Brent, who lived in San Antonio, but had helped move her a year earlier with with us, um, he had to use his ticket up within that year. So he had flown on out to visit her for a couple of days. And uh, it was his last night in town. And she decided... And, and Brent is who? Brent is... A, he's like a son to us and a big brother to her, I guess you'd say. They were extremely close. In fact, sometimes I think she was closer to Brent in many ways than she was to her own brother. Um, and they weren't romantically involved, but they were just very, very close. And uh, he had flown out to just to visit with her a little bit, a couple of days. And they'd spent the day by the pool and had a really good talk. And then they were deciding what to do that evening. And Jesse found out that the Batman movie was opening. And Brent was a huge Batman fan. So um, she, in her tenacious ways, got on the computer and found tickets to the 1206 showing of Batman in a theater that she had never been to before in her new neighborhood. So that was July 19th. Yep. Now tell me about July 20th. Well, um, I woke up um, in the middle of the night and felt like I had had a complete night's sleep and I'd only been asleep for a few hours. Um, so I got up and I went into the living room and took my phone, of course, and texted her to see if she was still up. And uh, she responded that they were at the movies. And I said, what are you doing at the movies? It's, you know, midnight kind of thing. I said, what are you doing at the movies? And she said, we're at the midnight premiere of the new Batman movie. And I immediately knew why, because Brent was such a fan that that's exactly what she would want to do on his last night in town. So we chatted for a little bit and she said, mom, go back to bed. I need my mama. And I said, I need my baby girl. And that was the last text. Hmm. And about 35 minutes later, um, my phone rang and the icon came up of Brent and I thought, well, they're at the movie. This is weird. And I answered the phone and he said, hey, baby, what's going on? And he said, um, there's been a shooting. It's random. And I could hear screaming in the back. And I knew something horrible had happened. 
And I said, are you okay? And he said, I think I've been shot twice. And I immediately knew that if he was calling me, Jesse was unable to call me. So I asked him, where's Jesse? And he said, I tried. And I said, Brent, where is Jesse? And he said, I'm sorry, I tried. And I said, oh, God, please don't tell me she's dead. And the phone went dead. And I'm told that I started screaming. And Well, that's probably where I should come in because yeah. she doesn't remember anything after that. So what were you seeing, Lonnie? I was asleep. And I heard this blood-curdling sound that I'd never heard before, a scream from my wife. So, so horrific, I thought somebody had broken into the house and was attacking her. And so I first went to the closet for my shotgun, and then I thought, I don't have time for this. So I ran into the living room, and she was sliding down the wall, screaming, Jesse's dead. And so that was my awakening, and I and grabbed her and from the wall and carried her over the couch and laid her down and said, you, you can't possibly know that. Why, how do you, why are you saying that? And she said, well, because Brent just hung up and he told me that, that she had been shot. And he knows he's a paramedic, so she didn't question the fact that he could be wrong. And at that moment when she was explaining how she knew, I knew she knew, and then I knew that our life was forever changed and my daughter was gone and my wife was never going to be the same. And there's more of this story to tell, but one piece of it that always haunts me a little bit on your behalf and on behalf of others whom I love and, and even myself when we've suffered a tragic loss like this. People wait for a time when they're going to get over something like this. You know, yeah. that, that, that word, that preposition over has always felt so wrong because you just don't ever get over no, it, it's totally wrong to, to expect um, anyone to get over a violent death. Like right. it, it, it's okay. And that you get back to normal. It, it changes. Well, first of all, we know that trauma changes your DNA. So you are a completely new person from the moment you find out that your loved one has been taken by, by violence. Uh, and certainly this kind of gun violence was horrific. I mean, Jesse was shot six times. The headshot that, that killed her, she probably would have died from any of the others by bleeding out because they were so horrific. But the headshot was by far the worst. And, um, left a five inch hole in her left orbital and blew her brains out. And, you know, I think of poor Brent witnessing this and people around her being uh, hit with yeah. that. And, and, and then for people to say, well, aren't you over it yet? And it's like, you're, you don't get over this. It changes who you are and you have to redefine everything about your life. And I mean, everything. So I'm, I'm touched by how 
Lonnie said he knew instantly, you know, once he got it, that Brent had said this, he knew his daughter was dead and he knew his wife would never be the same. And not just his life, but his wife yes. would never be yes. the same. He knew that. So you knew that the preposition over, get over something was never going to happen, Lonnie, something instinctive in you knew. Well, you know, um, yes, it was something that was just intuitively when I, I know her so well, and I know that when she is in that state that, and knowing that our daughter was gone and then knowing their love that between them, that she and Jesse had a special bond that, that no one really understood except maybe me because I was so close to both of them that, uh, yeah, it was going to be something that we were going to be dealing with for the rest of our life. And I knew it in an instant. In fact, that night, um, at one point I went into the, the bathroom to wash my face, to get some water, um, on me. And, um, he walked in and I said, I don't want to be the mom that walks into the room and everybody goes, Oh, that's the mom that whose daughter was murdered, you know? And he said, well, I understand, but that's who you are now. And it was that kind of woof. That, that prescience in a way, Lonnie, it always, I've heard your, you say that story before and it always strikes me as so moving that, uh, that you had such clarity in that moment. And, you know, we all have different reactions to shock. You know, some people, some of us scream and cry and some of us get real still and some of us get real focused. And well, I didn't know anything about grief until that moment. And grief turns out to be a place that none of us really know until we reach it. And our efforts to deal with Jesse's upending absence, uh, you know, that followed that void created by that untimely death, uh, that's what caused us and gave us the impetus. And, and that's what kept us alive, the fact that we needed to make her death count for something and we formed survivors empowered. And I think that's kept us, if you want to call it sane or dealing with the shock for the rest of our lives until now, we, that's how we deal with it. Well, and that's why I wanted to talk with you today because it's a phrase I've used before, but I feel it's apt here, which is that not all survivors survive. You know, not all people who have lost a loved one to tragedy like this or have seen, witnessed it like Brent did, not everybody makes it. Some people just fold up. Some people go into such deep and dark and long depression that their life is never the same for those reasons. Some people sadly develop addictions or other kinds of issues. And tragically, some of them take their own lives. Not all survivors survive, but you two and others that I've met as well have turned that heartbreak into activism in a way that and I know that some of it is because you deeply believe it, but I also wonder if transforming and representing Jesse and preventing tragedies like hers, if it helps keep her alive for you. Well, oh. in the past eight years, you know, we've, we've seen many state laws pass that would have prevented Jesse's death. So, you know, the massacre that killed 12 people and wounded 60 in a theater in Aurora you know, uh, one year after that massacre, Colorado passed a background check law 
and uh, that checked all gun purchases that would have to have a background check. And they limited the rounds on the rifle that killed her to 15 rounds. So that alone, we were there at the signing of that bill in Governor Hickenlooper's office almost a year to the day after she was killed. So that one thing began to help us through that we had accomplished something, that we know that we have saved lives because they their data shows it. So, you know, that's a positive feedback for us. And that kept us going. Well, that that and, and, and working with other survivors and helping them through their um, moment of new reality. and uh, That's def- what I wanted to get other survivors involved so yeah. we, we could have a whole group of survivors mm-hmm. that could make a lot of difference because survivors of violence, their voices are powerful and they're needed. Uh, to speak to our legislators and to our people that can affect change and change the laws. Right. Well, my mind is a buzz because I have a hundred things I want to ask you and talk to you about. But one of the things, Lonnie, when, when I first met the two of you more than five years ago now, and the first thing when, when I heard what Jesse's story was and you said, we knew right away that we couldn't change things for Jesse, but that we could change things for other people's children. Yep. That phrase has stuck with me. Yeah. It, it, it's important to, to put that grief for us. It's important to put that grief in a forward moving action. And we can't honor Jesse in person anymore. So the only way we can honor her is by, our action. So our action will save other people and we'll never know who they were or who they are. Because you can't measure what Um, you prevented. (laughs) No, no. But we do know what laws have worked. And when laws work, people are saved. So we know that. We know that the people that we have met who who have lost loved ones to gun violence and the things that we have helped them to accomplish on a personal level. Um, that has, that's a way of saving someone because they might've been that person that you were talking about earlier that goes into such a deep depression or takes their own life eventually because they can't cope. And we have seen that in every major mass shooting that we have gone to 15 now, but we have seen that repeat itself over and over and over again, especially with those who do not choose to go into any kind of trauma therapy. Those are the ones that we worry the most about. Well, and I, as a therapist too, and I've witnessed this and you and I have chatted briefly about this in the past, I always worry when somebody has just five seconds ago or five minutes or five days ago experienced such a loss like this. And then all of a sudden they're on camera and talking and, and I think, Oh my gosh, go get yourself cared for before you become an activist too soon. I'm, I'm afraid for you. Well, we, we were guilty of that. We were, we were on the, and I don't know where this came from other than, uh, Jesse was in, she was in, um, journalism and had done internships uh, at the TV stations locally in San Antonio. And um, of course they were the first people to be over at the house and all of them saying, we don't want a story. We're not here for a story. We're here because of Jesse. And that eased 
me into being able to discuss things Mm -hmm. much freer because I knew I wasn't going to be forced on camera. But the one young lady that was very close to Jesse and still, still is, um, she called me that afternoon and she goes, look, you can say no to this. I don't want you to do this for me. I only want you to do it if you want to do it. And it was Diane Sawyer on ABC and she wanted to do an interview. And I said, you know, if it was anybody else except Diane Sawyer or Oprah Winfrey, I'd say no. But Diane Sawyer was always the one that I talked to Jesse about emulating because she was always mm. feminine. She was smart. She was pointed. Uh, she didn't, she wasn't a light interview. She, you know, she got deep and heavy, um, but she always conducted herself with poise and grace. So um, I used to use her as an example to Jesse. So when, when that happened, we went on air that night I went on air that night and gave my very first interview, and I, I couldn't tell you what I, what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, we have it somewhere. I've never looked at it again. It was like, okay, once is enough. Yeah. Um, but after that, it was like, okay, we, we need to take care of ourselves. Um, I was very lucky within the, the – I had one bad therapist the first week, and the second week I found a really great one, and she's still in my life today. So, um, well, so that's, that's the big plug we want to put out to anyone who's suffered traumatic loss to find a therapist that understands trauma therapy and not just counseling. Exactly. It's a specialty and it's, it's an important, and there, there are also new, there's new progress in that area that we won't go into in this podcast, but there are new, there's new treatment available for trauma. And that really makes a big difference to people. I think it's really, really important that people understand trauma and PTSD because I didn't realize I had PTSD, but hearing those screams in the background while Brent was calling me still in the theater Mm -hmm. and all the chaos that was going on just in that short little phone call triggered PTSD in me. Well, it's what's called vicarious trauma. Yes. You, know, yes. you weren't in the room there, but uh, no. it, here's the other thing to know about that for listeners. You two know this, but Alfred Hitchcock knew something and he knew that what took place off the screen was scarier than what took place on the screen. <laughs> and you know, when he did that shower scene in Psycho, you never saw a knife touch Janet Lee's body but we all saw it in our minds. And so the same thing happens when we have, when we experience a trauma at a distance like that, our brain fills in the story accurately or not. Oh yes. And you've probably seen Jesse's murder a million times. Oh, thousands, 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 thousands of times Mm -hmm. and couldn't get myself out of the theater. I was so um, broken that Every night I'd go to bed and I was in that theater and I was trying to save her or, you know, keep it from happening or, you know, trying to, trying to rewrite the story. Right. Well, you wanted a different ending. Yes, absolutely. And, and the, the, my, my therapist said, you know, you got to get yourself out of the theater and um, you weren't there. You know, she kept reminding me, you weren't there. You don't know what happened. You probably will never know all the details and that's okay. And you can't it change it. It doesn't change the ending. Right. Exactly. It doesn't change the ending. So you, you come to a point where you, you have to accept the ending. Um, you don't like it. 
and it stays with you forever. Well, that's where the preposition changes, right? Instead of getting over something, you live with it. With it and through it. And through it. Yes. Yeah. So let me switch to another topic here. And for those listening to the two of you lived in Texas, you had a shotgun in the, in the closet, you were gun owners, responsible ones I'm gathering. Yes. And the work that you've done as far as gun law legislation is not to undo the second amendment or to rid the whole country of guns. What is the objective that you have? So you do two two hunks of work that I know of. One is the work that you do with Survivors Empowered, and that's about supporting, loving, educating. The, every survivor becomes a family member with Lonnie and Sandy. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And I, I'm, I'm one of them. So I, I understand because my own brother took his, his life with a gun. And so it's gun violence that's self-inflicted, but it's still nonetheless gun, gun violence. Um, Lonnie and Sandy, you become family members with survivors, but the other part of your activism is about gun laws. And can you tell me, for those who think that you just want to rid the whole country of guns or abolish the Second Amendment, can you please educate us a little bit about that? And perhaps, Lonnie, you could start with that. Recently, about a year ago, we had a meeting in Denver, Colorado, on the anniversary of uh, the Columbine shooting. And we called it the Denver Accord. And it was a compilation of a lot of groups that met in Denver from all over the country. And we set out what things we wanted to change. And it's two pages of things. And each one of them, you know, of course, we started out with the low-hanging fruit. 75% of Americans, including gun owners, want background checks. So, you know, we were really thrilled about the Colorado law got passed in one year. They got background checks passed. They got limits on magazines because they really worked hard and pushed through Congress those laws with the help of a lot of people in that area. And because of the fact that Aurora caused the narrative to change. So with that, every time there's a mass shooting, there's a push for gun laws, except the same thing happens. It happened with in Newtown, when we thought we were going to get background checks on a national level, we were all excited. Well, when we found out in the wake of that, of those two horrible shootings, Aurora, five months later, Newtown, that we needed 60 votes to get that background check law passed, and we got 54, which, of course, in most democracies is a, is a, a win. But because of the laws in our Congress and the they call the filibuster rule and they were able to thwart that passing of the law. And it was a huge, huge uh, defeat for all of us that thought, what is going on here? How can this be? How can they tiptoe past the graves of our children? And, and, and not by any means to minimize your loss because uh, at all. But you would think that after Sandy Hook, of all of the shootings, because it was kindergartners and first graders, that that I, I think that a lot of us kept thinking that would that will do it. Oh my gosh! Nothing yeah. is more horrible than twenty dead babies and six educators. Everybody yeah. knows that, but that you know. So yeah, that was a huge, huge. That was, as a matter of fact, President Obama, who we got to meet several times because of our situation. That was one of the worst 
parts of his presidency, the fact that he could not make any movement on gun reform. After Sandy Hook. When our shooting happened five months earlier, nobody wanted to talk about it because the the debates were coming up. The presidential debates were coming up. So nobody wanted to touch it. And the Olympics were coming up. So they just kind of tried to brush our shooting under the rug and go on like everything was okay. They didn't try. They successfully yeah, they successfully. Yes. Well, like they do on most yes. of the others. Yeah. So um, when Sandy Hook happened, that changed everything. And it still has. And I think that's where we, we feel um, as a movement, we look at, at this and think, oh, we were so defeated. But it has changed everything. And then every shooting since then has changed things a little more. And more and more people are aghast that this keeps happening in our country and they're asking questions. So a lot of what we do is awareness. It's not so much fighting to change laws or get laws passed, although we do that as well. But it's an awareness that we have to have national law versus state law, and that the national law has to be as strong as whatever state has the strongest laws. Um, So, but it has to be um, from a national level. So everything is the same everywhere you go. Because otherwise you can buy guns in Indiana and take them into Chicago. Exactly. Exactly. Good girl, Betsy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been listening. So you're not trying to abolish guns. You're saying reasonable, sensible gun laws, and not only just gun laws, but sensible gun practices. If people have guns in their homes, how they should be stored, how ammunition, how to protect toddlers from accidentally killing their siblings, how those kinds of things. So it's, it's sensible gun laws. And in fact, Lonnie, you know, your instinct when you thought there was a home intruder was that you you thought at first that you'd go get a gun. And so you aren't even against having a gun for self-protection, I'm gathering. Well, you know, I have, we have the gun for, for sport. We like to trap shoot and to skeet shoot. And uh-huh. uh, we're not real, real active and we're not gun hoarders. Uh, I think Sandy's family was more hunters and they trained Sandy from the age of 10 to shoot. Uh, she did well until she killed her first bird, and she never did it again. <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, that, that happened to me. I got, I got taken hunting one time. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, yeah. But one I, time. Was, I was taken many times. I just didn't want to do it. Right. You're not <laughs> yeah. anti-gun. I mean, guns are recreation, and guns mostly, that's the most often used reason for having a gun is self-protection. But most people don't understand that having a gun in the home there's a many, many other things that are incorporated in that. You have to, to be safe with that gun or you'll end up as 40% of people that have guns in their home are more apt to have that gun used against them or have it used in a suicide or something of that. Or an accident. They are to protect. Yeah, because there's not yes. that many uh, home invasions. But fear is what the NRA, yeah. they, what they promote, fear, and that's how they sell guns. And that's what's happening right now in covid we have so many people that are so fearful of what the riots and what they call them riots, which are actually a protest movement. Uh, they've gone out and bought more guns. So this month, uh, within the three-month period since COVID, the gun sales have risen 80% in that same time period. So hmm. what we're seeing is um, an uptick in gun sales, but these people are not being trained. They're having guns in their home. They don't know how to store them properly. They're not keeping them hidden well enough for their children. And plus the fact that this is causing a lot of stress in families. 
we're seeing a real serious uptake in violence. Domestic violence. Absolutely. That's what I've been I've been nervous about that because I've worked in a lot with domestic violence and folks cooped up and financially yep. stretched and not enough structure in their day because maybe they're not working. Add a gun to that makes you got real problems. Uh, they throw in some alcohol just for fun and it really gets exactly. kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. So let me let me shift the conversation just a bit and and the two of you and of course your your surviving son and your loved ones, others who loved Jesse the way that you how could you not? I love Jessie and I never met her because I, you have made her so alive for me. Um, but I want to ask, because, because you don't get over this, because it's something you live through and because I'm interviewing you in the middle of July, which is three days away from what you call your tragiversary, um, I'm wondering... And I know that there are terrible dark times when the grief and the PTSD just overwhelm both of you in different ways. How do you get through that? How do you make it through? We lean on each other. Um, Lonnie has been my rock since that night. I mean, he was before, but since that night, he has really been... um, the one person that I could always count on to understand um, where I was coming from. You know, if I get short or anxious or snippy or whatever, um, he understands it, that it's not him. It's not even me. It's just the situation that we're in. And I try very hard to always remember that um, what has happened to us defines how we're going to be as people. And you try to lead with kindness and love instead of anger and hate. So um, that's what we try to do with one another. And then we can carry it outside the house. Um, so Lonnie, how do you manage? How, how can you continue to be a rock? Because I imagine this gets to you on days too. Well, of course it does. And, and grief is something that nobody knows what it's going to be like until they get it. And so it comes upon you unwanted, of course, and suddenly. And then you have to start having coping mechanisms to deal with it. And and those mechanisms are different from everyone. Sandy had to have uh, therapy right away. And uh, she was my therapy because I couldn't concentrate on my grief because uh, dealing with hers and getting her through it because she had such a bad, uh, awful shock uh, to her system. And so when she went into therapy, uh, I went along and and I was present at a lot of those sessions, which helped me considerably. So that's what I, I've been using that learning experience and uh, I haven't had as much therapy as Sandy I think because I've her therapy has bleeded over into me and to my well and it's also true that different ones of us respond in different ways to grief and and need different things well and Lonnie's always been very zen like anyway you know that's <laughs> his nature um so he he he, I think, has benefited more from the mindfulness aspect of our work um, than he he did from the therapy, where I I needed both mm-hmm. and still do and rely on 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 both. Um, 
but fortunately we are surrounded by people who are therapists, trauma therapists, art therapists, um, and people that are in the mindfulness world. So we're, we're, we feel like we're pretty covered. (laughs) We're very fortunate. You you take good advantage. Well, and I also should say too, that in the survivor world, a lot of marriages don't survive because, because it's such a pain, like, like a lot of marriages don't survive other difficulties, but this one in particular, it can, it can either separate people or make them really close together. And I'm so, so, so happy that for the two of you, that it, it cemented that bond even more. Yeah, we were strong before, but boy, this has made it like glue, you know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're just, and we knew that that night, you know, we really did. It was like, we will get through this. We have we have found out through this that all survivors are not created equal. No. And we have learned as we go through this that even, you know, out of the Columbine shooting, so many people were hurt and they all had a different belief system. It seemed like that they didn't get involved. Uh, Tom Mauser is the one that lost his son there, is really the only one that, stood up out of the so many people that were affected. Uh, he and uh, um, the coach's daughter, Connie Sanders, Connie Sanders uh, has gone on to be a therapist. And But mostly people don't, and a lot of them commit suicide. Maybe as many as that do go on to... I think in every fight. shooting... Uh, almost every shooting, there has been at least one. Um, we had one in Aurora. Columbine had one. Sandy Hook has had one. Recently. Um, yes. So it, it, sometimes it's right away. Sometimes it's years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the other side of that is those of us who become very active and do become activists quite often burn out. Tom Mauser, as Lonnie was saying, he's been involved in this for over 20 years now. And he was all alone when he first started. Well, Columbine was sort of the first of the major school shootings that I recall. It was. And he didn't give up. He kept Mm. going. Uh, Same with Virginia Tech. People at Virginia Tech, they, they got involved right away. And only a few of them are still really active in the movement because well, they get death threats um, from the the far right, uh, and they they have to continue to work and make a living. And pretty soon, they just drop off. Well, and who who could blame them? No. <laughs> and I know you no. don't. So I sure don't. Well, so can you just tell me? We just have a couple of moments left, and I'd like to hear what you how you describe survivors empowered and how people can learn about you and, and take advantage. Who's it for and what do you do? Well, it's by survivors, for survivors, to empower survivors. Um, and it is a soft place to land. What we try to do is is guide the new survivors to and, and what they should expect. Um, that you know, there are going to be hoaxers out there that say your shooting never happened. Um there are going to be people that try to take advantage of you monetarily. Both of which happened to you. 
Yes, there will be gun violence prevention organizations who try to take advantage of you and do. So we just try to, as you said, try to provide a soft place to land so you will be surrounded by support and love and other survivors who understand what you're going through. Uh, The one thing that we insist upon is that you're kind. You must be kind, even if you don't like a survivor, even if you don't agree with a survivor and what they're doing, that's their path and it's not yours. Do not judge them for that. Well, yeah, because it's it's not exactly a club of people that got together because of a similar passion or care. It's, it's, it's a group that got formed because of tragedy. And so different people exactly. from different walks of life of different philosophies and faiths and uh-huh. political beliefs. And all of a sudden they're into this one big soup. And of course, not everybody's going to be as perfectly no. compatible with each other, but it's I, just I, like the real world, isn't it? I mean, ain't it though? Yeah. <laughs> ain't no. it though? Well, so folks can find out about you by going to survivorsempowered.org. And if you are a survivor, if you love someone who is, if you're still suffering some PTSD, some just sorrow, This is a great resource and a great place to start. Lonnie and Sandy Phillips, I'm beyond grateful that you would spend time with me today and even more grateful for the work that you do for others. I know that Jesse is honored with your every effort. And I know that I feel as though I know her, though I never got to meet her on this planet because of the work that you do. Thank you so much for what you do and for this conversation today. Thank you for having us, Betsy. It's been an honor. I've been waiting for a long time to have my conversation with Lonnie and Sandy. And I'm going to tell you, we've booked it quite a few times. And early on, it kept getting canceled because they were out helping people. <laughs> they Every time we'd get a, a time to record our conversation booked, there'd be another shooting. And that's always their first priority. These are just the most amazing people. And I want to put a triple plug in for their organization, survivorsempowered.org. It's a 100% donations funded organization. This is not a get rich quick foundation. Lonnie and Sandy live very humbly, often in the borrowed homes of loved ones or in their camper because they're helping folks. And all of the money goes in to helping them do that. It's a very modest organization. So if ever you have a few extra nickels jingling around in the couch cushions, or maybe a little bit more than that, it's a really good place to make a donation. In terms of extra blooms, one of the things that comes to mind is something we didn't really talk about, but that you'll notice that Sandy, when she described the shooting, she didn't say, my daughter passed away or when she was taken or when we lost her. She talks about her being murdered. She talks specifically about and uses the the kind of vocabulary that describes the event. And when I first met her, I was surprised that she and Lana used that language. And later on, I realized how important it is that they do. We have all these euphemisms for death, these euphemisms for how we lost somebody. But in reality, their daughter was murdered slaughtered, shot. And I think that the candor about that is an important thing. I also know, because we've spoken about it, that through telling that story, it's not that the pain of it goes away, but that they've gotten better at saying it and that that 
hiding the story or not speaking those words is actually more harmful to them than not. You know, I'm a therapist, so I believe that when we talk about things in a safe environment at first and later when we have the courage perhaps to say them publicly, that it makes a lot of difference. I invite you to, if you are a survivor of gun violence or of other trauma, to know that specialists that are there to help are of good use. I want to thank you for listening to the Morning Glory Project today. I know that when someone has turned their heartbreak into heroism, it's deeply inspiring, but that it also comes at a cost to them. So I'll hold you survivors and thrivers and activists in my heart as well. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope that today you find a beautiful way to bloom.